Very soon. Very soon. What will be the number? Very soon? 4,000? Very soon, yes. Like how soon? I don't want to tell you that. I don't want to tell it's you It's big that. news. What is that? that is it's going down to 4,000, isn't it? No, I've always said Well, what about, we're what about get, election day? We will get largely out. On election day, how many American troops will be in Afghanistan? Uh, probably anywhere from four to 5,000. Welcome to the Political Notebook podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. On this episode, we're going to talk about two things. First, we will talk about the uh, primary results, some of the some of the big takeaways from the Arizona primaries that happened earlier this week. Uh, and I also, on the second part, want to uh, talk about something that's that's not been uh, in the news a lot lately, and that's uh, the question of uh, foreign policy. So even though it's not on the front pages right now, we still are in a war in Afghanistan. And I think it is an important question to talk about heading uh, into November as we are debating and uh, deciding who's going to be uh, the next commander-in-chief. But let's start out with uh, the primary results. So so you said, Dad, and, and wrote that for Martha McSally, uh, for her challenger, Daniel McCarthy, 25% was really the number where, where you thought that would be in the danger zone in terms of uh, losing part of the base. And on the last podcast, you guessed that it would be under that. I said it would be over. So you were correct on that. He got uh, Daniel McCarthy got 24 percent as of as of this county. I think there's still a few more votes left uh, to be counted. Uh, but McSally immediately that that night Tuesday uh, declared victory. It's obvious from from the very beginning of Maricopa County's uh, results coming in. But she immediately challenged uh, Mark Kelly to seven debates much to the chagrin of McCarthy voters who were practically begging her for a debate during the <laughs> primary. <laughs> um, but do you think, how, do, how does she feel right now? Do you think, she, uh, you think she's better off uh, now than she was uh, three weeks ago? How does she feel heading into November? I think she feels um, better as a result of the primary election, um, but I'm not sure that she should. Uh, 24% is awfully close to 25%. Uh, and um, McCarthy was such a non-entity uh, in in the race. I think you may have paid more attention to him than any other voter <laughs> in in the state. Um, it, it is it, it can only be explained as a protest vote. Uh, and in the 2018 election, um, uh, McSally lost a disproportionate number of Republican voters. So um, while it's not as bad as it would be if it had been 35%, uh, it still says that she has some work to do consolidating the Republican base uh, behind her at a time where she's running substantially behind Kelly and all the public polls. And um, Kelly, at least heretofore, has had a more appealing pitch to independents uh, than uh, McSally has. Uh, and I, I think um, the number of debates that she has requested is an illustration of the fact that she thinks she's far behind. Um, and particularly when uh, she didn't do very well in the debates against cinema. In fact, an argument can be made, I think, uh, that 
she lost the election in one of the debates when she, in essence, accused Cinema of treason. So she, she's not a warm and fuzzy figure, and she comes across pretty aggressive um, in debates. So the fact that she's asked for seven of them uh, indicates that she's swinging for the fences. She's hoping to trap Kelly into making some kind of major blunder uh, that changes the dynamic of the election. There's zero chance that Kelly's going to agree to that. Is there any, you think a, a serious blunder would be able to make the difference from, from the poll numbers we're seeing right now? What is, what could possibly happen that could cause, cause a shift from, from all the indications we that we're seeing right now? Well, Kelly has never been on a large political stage like this. And everybody who goes through it says, there's nothing which prepares you for it. Um, he has a tough type rope to, to walk during this election. Uh, he wants to run as sort of cinema redux, uh, a independent nonpartisan problem solver who's gonna be bipartisan. Um, but uh, unlike cinema in 2018, there's someone at the top of the ticket that defines what the Democratic Party stands for. And Biden is adopting an increasingly radical um, left-wing uh, policy agenda, big spending policy agenda. Um, the media won't be nearly as interested <laughs> in holding uh, Kelly uh, to account for what Biden says and stands for as it will be in holding McSally to account for what Trump says and stands for. Uh, but I find it inconceivable between now and the election uh, that Kelly won't be forced to become far more forthcoming on uh, how he feels about some of the major policy initiative that Biden is going to be running on at the national level. And just it's just treacherous territory where every word you say is recorded and subject to a proctology exam. And he's just never been on that stage and learned how to manage that. Unlike cinema who had had deep political experience uh, previous to uh, her running for U S Senate. So yes, I believe that there are, that there are substantive um, things that could happen in terms of policy that could change the tide of the election. Uh, and I just think that um, an amateur being on this large of a public stage uh, has its own inherent dangers. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about just a couple more things, uh, kind of takeaways from the primary. You've uh, kind of written about already and are diving into the, to the Schweikert uh, documents. Um, do you think that the – just could quickly kind of explain the, the – um, What's going on with uh, with Schweikert in terms of the ethics uh, violations and how do you think that's going to cost him uh, the congressional seat? Um, I, I don't think that it costs him the congressional seat, but it may um, put it in play to a larger extent than it already uh, was. Um, the Health Ethics Committee has been investigating a variety of of. Um, ethical complaints against Schweikert. Uh, it 
uh, culminated uh, last week uh, in a settlement agreement uh, where uh, Schweikert and the Ethics Committee agreed um, on a set of violations and a penalty. He was reprimanded by the entire House uh, and uh, has to pay a $50,000 fine. There is one, I, I, I think Republicans are now fairly practiced in overlooking uh, character flaws in their <laughs> candidates. Uh, so I don't know that what is on the record in this settlement agreement uh, would be sufficient to change the dynamic. This is a very lopsidedly uh, Republican districts, even though Democrats have high hopes and got the primary candidate um, that they thought would be uh, the strongest. The one thing that is unanswered in the um, ethics settlement uh, that might change the dynamic is that there is some, there's an unexplained phony loan uh, that Schweikert made to his campaign uh, when he faced a tough primary in 2012 against Ben Quayle. Um, it was covered up with phony disbursements to make the cash in the bank match the cash on hand that was being reported to the FEC. Uh, there was also at the same time a legitimate loan that was made. After the election, um, Swikert's wife, who was deeply involved in his campaign finances at this point in time, asked the committee to repay what was owed um, from that campaign. It is unclear whether she was asking just for the legitimate 130,000 to be repaid or whether she was also asking for the phony 100,000 to be repaid. And um, the latter would have involved converting campaign funds into personal funds, which is certainly a disqualifying event. Why the phony loan was covered up with phony disbursements rather than simply correcting the record and saying, oops, this wasn't, this loan wasn't actually happened, mm -hmm. hasn't been adequately explained. And I think that that's a legitimate question. Then over the course of his political career, uh, Schweikert has uh, loaned his campaign committees and be re been repaid to the tune of over $600,000. Well, if we had this one dodgy loan where it's unclear whether there was a um, effort to get it repaid, that raises questions as to whether the other loans were all legit. And when the committee asked him about it, um, as to whether any of the others were inadvertently reported or phony, uh, Schweikert's answer was um, very unreassuring. It was, I don't believe so. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that, that he has to provide documentation that proves that he has not ever converted campaign cash to personal enrichment uh, and if he fails to do that or can't do that, that could change the dynamic in the race. Because I think that would be for many Republican voters who would infinitely prefer him on policy uh, to his Democratic opponent uh, to say um, that's just an, an ethical violation so serious that it renders him unfit for office. Who's his opponent? Uh, it's Harold. Tripper Nini. 
She's the one that came close to defeating Lesko uh, in another congressional oh, yeah. district oh, yeah. in a special election. She got beat pretty handily uh, in a rematch of it. Uh, but she raised a lot of money and she won the Democratic primary convincingly. Uh, and she's the one that I th that the Democrats think have the best shot at um, and it would have to be a long shot race. Right. Well, one more one more question here about the primaries before uh, switching gears. Um, the political career of Joe Arpaio is probably over. You never know if he's going to run for something again, but he's uh, has lost his, his primary to uh, Jerry Sheridan, uh, his former deputy. Um, is it going to be e – last time uh, uh, Sheriff Paul Penzone uh, beat uh, Joe Arpaio, uh, is this going to be another, uh, another defeat of Arpaio's former deputy, or do you think this is going to be a more challenging uh, race? I, I really don't know, and it's a fascinating uh, question. Um, Jerry, Jerry Sheridan, when he was the chief deputy to Arpaio, um, did a good job of repairing relationships um, in, with the rest of county government after Arpaio and Joe Thomas had accused everybody to be being involved in this vast criminal, criminal conspiracy. Um, but he... But he uh, was uh, blind uh, to Arpaio's racial profiling in his traffic stops. Uh, and it was his job to make sure that the troops complied with what the judge required uh, as a remedy. And he failed to do that. And, and he was uh, found in contempt of court for his own personal failure. Now, that's a lot of inside baseball stuff that, that, the public doesn't naturally understand. I think Penzo, who, who beat Arpaio um, with, by a very large margin, would have had an easy time against Arpaio. Uh, but uh, Republicans still have a slight registration advantage in Maricopa County. Uh, the sheriff is a law and order position that I think people tend to um, view Republicans better at and more committed to than uh, Democrats, even though Penzone has a uh, police background. Um, so uh, wh whether this will be, it's easier to defeat him because he's the chief deputy, or it's harder to defeat him because he's less well-known, uh, and therefore um, a lot of Republicans and independents, without knowing of his history with um, Arpaio, uh, might be uh, inclined to cast a vote for the Republican. I mean, is that an easy thing to just tie them together though? Because I think, I mean, I think voters are not happy with the fact that, I mean, that, that Arpaio was pardoned by, by Trump. And is that association, uh, I mean, Sheridan being just associated with, um, kind of that, um, that, you know, just people's, people's feelings about that, is that association going to stick? Uh, and is that even um, worth campaigning on? I think it, it would stick. Uh, and I think it would um, win the election for Pinzone. But communicating that requires right, a lot right, of right. money uh, in an atmosphere where 
the airways and the mailboxes are going to be filled with political messages. Right. So Pinzone um, will need to uh, break through and communicate that to a large enough audience to make the difference. Pinzone um, uh, was fortunate in not having a Democratic opponent in the primary, even though uh, the hard left has uh, not been happy um, with a variety of policies that he's pursued or, or refused to get rid of uh, as sheriff. Um, but it appears that uh, the Democrats understood that um, he was their best shot at holding on to the seat and that he would be, from their perspective, uh, light years uh, better than uh, either Arpaio or Sheridan. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll uh we'll see how that all these races uh develop and we will continue uh to cover election 2020 uh analysis here on the political notebook. Let's switch gears and talk about foreign policy. That the uh, clip you heard at the beginning was from a Axios interview uh earlier this week uh with uh Jonathan Swan and Many people were disturbed by by Trump's response in this interview. It's the same kind of situation that happened a few weeks ago with the interview with Chris Wallace, where it was a tough interview, and um, there was a lot of lot of uh, you know, I think his defensiveness and and his lack of grasp on issues were were pretty were pretty obvious. Um, now, I, I mean, I'd like to see Joe Biden sit for some of these interviews, and that's. Um, that's the that's the critique that I think a lot of Republicans would make is like let's see let's see Joe Biden sitting for some of these interviews see what see what happens there but um, it's kind of disturbing that he, that he did not seem to have a, a clear grasp on just the data of COVID and and got very very defensive about uh, just the stats that Jonathan Swan was saying but one of the things about that that really I think got got lost in you know speaking of waves of of news and headlines and everything going on right now. Is that is this response about Afghanistan and the fact that, um, you know, that we've been in Afghanistan for almost twenty years and uh, and part of Trump's campaign was about changing the uh, our strategy in the Middle East and about bringing the bringing the troops home. And in, in this interview, he called it he called um, getting into the Middle East the, the biggest mistake that the United States has ever made uh, and. Typical, I think uh, everything is extreme with, with Trump. But um, I mean, we've been in Afghanistan for almost twenty years, and it seems like what's the um, at some point we got to come home, right? So, and it seems like there's always there's always always some reason to uh, to stay in because um, there's always going to be some you know danger there, especially if we have you know if we still have troops there. Um, so. It's been been four years. Trump has 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 not brought the troops home. What um, what's going on? Why why are we still in uh, Afghanistan? What's our what's our strategy right now? Well, I I have advocated for several years now um, that the United States should extricate itself entirely from Afghanistan, and and I opposed a continuing mission there uh, after we had initially chased Al-Qaeda and uh, the Taliban uh, out of the country. 
Uh, Trump inherited from the Obama administration a uh, troop mission that consisted of two parts. Uh, one was supporting uh, the uh, Afghan uh, native forces um, with training, logistics, and air support. And the second was counterinsurgency um, actions against um, Al-Qaeda and other Islamist, uh, Islamic uh, terrorists. Um, that mission so far has not changed under Trump. Uh, what did change was more intensity in peace negotiations with the Taliban. Uh, and uh, we have been, under Trump, more active in exploring uh, a peace settlement. Um, it hasn't come about. There was a ceasefire uh, that has reduced hostilities, but not eliminated them, and there's still hostilities there. Um, so, uh, as Trump, as you mentioned, uh, or alluded to, ran in 2016 on ending endless wars. Um, there's no one, no war that has been more un, uh, unending uh, than Afghanistan. Uh, he has had on the table a reduction of troop levels to the four to 5,000 uh, that he um, cited in the interview for a while now. Uh, his military advisors do not believe that that's sufficient to continue the two missions that, uh, military missions that we currently have there. Um, but um, it, I think it's highly likely and I think appropriate for him to do the withdrawals irrespective of um, the status of the peace settlement negotiations. There are, however, um, a lot of people in Afghanistan and in foreign policy and military circles in the United States uh, that fear that uh, Trump is cutting and running. And um, if we reduce our troop levels to that extent, uh, it will tip the balance in favor of the Taliban. And rather than create peace will trigger an increase in the intensity of the civil war. My own view is if after 20 years, the Afghan government and all the military and financial and infrastructure support that we've provided, uh, if um, the Afghanistani government isn't capable of holding the line and winning um, their their country, uh, we're like we're, we're we shouldn't be holding our finger in the dike. That there's no U.S. interest that's served by continuing the role that we currently have. And there's still well, American troops that periodically get injured or killed. Yeah, yeah. Just one one more question here on, on Afghanistan before we um, before we conclude. Uh, there is another Russia Russia uh, accusation uh, out there, and it's like it's never it's so hard to tell in the, in the media like what's what's really concerning or, or really going on with with Russia. Um, 
But the you know there's a, there was uh, reports that Russia was offering you know bounties and and and, and or arms to uh, uh, to Taliban forces that were maybe used against uh, U.S. troops. Uh, what's your sort of like take take away on that in terms of uh, is that uh, intelligence accurate? How how concerning should that uh, re- those reports be? I don't know whether. It's accurate, and there's conflicting reports as to the degree of confidence our intelligent agencies uh, have uh, in the reports. I frankly would be surprised if it wasn't true. Um, when uh, a um, communist government was in place in Afghanistan and the Russians had large number of troops there to support it, and there was a civil war going on against it, uh, the United States um, armed uh, the rebel forces um, that were uh, killing um, Russian troops. Uh, we were trying to bog down uh, Russia in, uh, at the time, the Soviet Union uh, in Afghanistan. Um, the Russians, Afghanistan is too close to Russia. Uh, for the Russians to have comfort uh, with our degree of activity and presence there. Uh, And it wouldn't surprise me in the least that they're doing whatever they can um, to uh, bog us down uh, and to make it more likely that we would would leave. I don't think that it's significant because um, these forces don't need any more incentive to kill American troops. They've been doing that uh, regularly since the um, the beginning. So I don't think but, the bounties, if they had been offered, uh, uh, were a significant development, except um, exposing uh, Russia for the kind of government that it is, uh, and um, that it continues to be a geopolitical rival to the United States and regards itself as such. Well, regard. I mean, regardless of the the history of of us <laughs> arming uh, resistance uh, in that same region to them, in this current situation, uh, is it is it not the responsibility of a commander in chief to um, to at least confront uh, or acknowledge uh, that to you know, in, in conversations with, with the Russians, is it, do you see it as, um, like Trump should call Putin out for for that and, and confront him on that? I don't know what purpose that shows, um, or serves. Um, so Trump says, Vladimir cut this out. Vladimir says, it's not happening. I wouldn't do that. I mean, the guy lies about, virtually everything he does in geopolitics. Um, so what, what's been accomplished, um, except trying to manage the domestic politics on, on the topic, uh, and given uh, the conflicts uh, about uh, how confident we are in the reporting, uh, we have lots of other things that we have better unquestioned documentation on um, and, and, and that would be more substantive in confronting uh, the Russians uh, regarding. 
uh, and Trump has acted on them. He's, he's withdrawn, uh, draw, withdrawn us from two treaties that we have ample documentation that uh, the Russians were cheating on. Um, so uh, I, I think actions speak louder than words in these circumstances, and it would be sort of theater for Trump, for his domestic audience to say, I confronted Putin on this and told him to cut it out and Putin to his domestic audience told, say, I told the president, we're not doing that sort of thing. And meanwhile, they should get out of Afghanistan. Anyway, it's none of their business. So. Yeah. I know I said one last question, like two questions ago, but this is really is the last question. Uh, do you think that, it makes it harder now to get out of Afghanistan now that we do have all of these, uh, you know, it's like, oh, Russia was arming the Taliban against us. We can't leave now. Do you think that has any influence on our likelihood of actually getting out of Afghanistan? Um, maybe after the election uh, and if uh, Trump is defeated. I think Trump wants the talking point in this election uh, that he brought military activities in Afghanistan to an end and put an end to one endless um, war. Uh, if Biden is elected, um, what kind of approach he's going to take to Russia, um, I think is completely impossible to uh, project. Uh, because it hurts Trump all of a sudden, <laughs> All the Democrats are want to be really tough on Russia, uh, but anytime the Democrats have been off in office, they've been soft on on Russia, and in, including uh, in the Obama, Biden, Hillary Clinton uh, regime. Um, so I would, I mean, I, I know what the rhetoric is going to be between now and the election, uh, whether there really will be a get tougher on Russia policy uh, under President Biden, I think is um, much more doubtful than what his rhetoric between now and the election will be. Well, let's let's leave it there. Uh, I would want to talk about the Suns here at the end, but I don't want to jinx anything that's happening <laughs> right now. So I'm just going to say, go Suns. And Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. Uh, you can find us on uh, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Thanks.